Please stand as you are able for today's New Testament lesson from the book of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, have you no fish? You have no fish, have you? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net to the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not very far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, a hundred fifty-three of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? Because they knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks be to God for the reading of his holy word. Charlie, thank you for reading our lesson on this third Sunday of Easter. And for those of you who are present, it is such a joy to be with you to worship God and those of you at home as well. Toy, thank you for praying up a storm today. That's what I call exhortation prayer. And we're grateful that you've led us in prayer. And Mason, praise team, uh, what a wonderful, what a wonderful time of worship that we have had this morning. We're continuing our series today that we actually started uh, last week called Kindred Hearts. And what we're doing during this series for the next 10 or so weeks is we're taking a look in the New Testament at the call stories, people that Jesus called into action, into ministry, into mission, into witness. 
And we began last week, I want to back up just with this thesis, we began with this premise in mind, that what binds us together as the body of Christ, what binds us together as the family of God is not an ecclesial structure, it's not denominational polity, it's certainly not institutional bureaucracy, but what binds us together as the family of God is a common purpose, it's a common witness, a common mission. And in John's epilogue, in the 21st chapter that Charlie just read for us, this mission is depicted using the metaphors of fishing and shepherding. And that's our task. That's our purpose. That is the glue. The mission of the church is the glue that holds us together. I believe that missional relationships create kindred hearts and that those bonds cannot be broken. John chapter 21, the epilogue of the fourth gospel, is actually a call story. The truth of the matter is it's a recall story. I don't know if you've discovered this or not, but the call of God is not just a one-time thing, is it? God calls us over and over and over again because sometimes, if you're like me, we're kind of like an automobile or a vehicle that develops a faulty part along the journey. And we occasionally, like automobiles, also need to be recalled by the manufacturer so that we can function as we were designed to function. I read the other day that since 1966, get this, over 300 million vehicles in the United States have been recalled. The truth is we all have defective parts that we develop along the journey that demand, that necessitate a sense of recall. And so it was with the apostles. The story begins by noting that seven of the original 12 disciples now have gone back to fishing. What does that mean? It means that they've gone back to their life B.C., before Christ. They've gone back to what they know. This is what happens sometimes in lieu of some deep disappointment, some deep grief, some deep suffering experience is we go back to the familiar They go back to the nets, to the boat, to the water. It's interesting that five of these seven are mentioned by name, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, and John, and then John just says, and a couple of other guys. Uh, If I had been one of those other guys, I might be offended. My name didn't make it in the Scripture, but he just throws it out there that a couple of other guys were with him, seven of the original 12. After Holy Week... After the experience of Good Friday and the empty tomb, these worshiping, wavering disciples who are really unsure of what to do next go back to what they know. They go back to the routine. And yet, once you have been with Jesus, life can never be routine again. Once you have experience the risen one, life can never be the same again. I think it was Paul Scherer in his book, The Word God Sent, who said, the resurrection sets me in a world that is not self-contained, but open and drafty 
with the winds of eternity blowing through it. Life can never be the same, and yet seven of the 12 have gone fishing. It was Barbara Brown Taylor who said, and I think she's right, fishing is an excuse for not having to think. I think that's right sometimes. I saw a sign the other day that said, cook a man a fish and you feed him for a day, but teach a man to fish and you get rid of him for the whole weekend. Fishing is an excuse for not having to think. But on this particular trip, on the lake in Galilee, the disciples come back empty-handed. In other words, they fish all night, which was the appropriate time for fishing for professional fishermen, and they have absolutely nothing to show for it but empty nets. Now, I think that that phrase, empty nets, is actually a sign of what life can be like without Jesus. Empty nets. If you remember a few chapters back from the epilogue in John 15, verse 5, Jesus said to them, apart from me, you can do nothing. And now they're feeling it. You remember the rest of that verse? It begins like this. Whoever abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit, but apart from me, empty nets. And then something happens. They're paddling back to shore. The sun is coming up, and they look on the shore, and they spot a stranger on the beach. He notes that they have caught nothing, and he motions them to cast their nets on the starboard side. Apparently, this stranger on the distant shore can see what they cannot see. And with nothing to lose, they respond in obedience to his command. And the result is stunning. All of a sudden, empty nets are teeming with life. And John says, not in his words, but in mine, they take in a mess of fish. This stranger on the shore turns their emptiness into abundance. And that is so Jesus, isn't it? It's no accident that in John's gospel, John bookends his narrative with two stories of abundance. You remember the first one? The first miracle in chapter 2, John, Cana of Galilee, Jesus notices a dwindling wine supply at a wedding reception, and he has the clay pots full of water brought, and he transforms the water into wine. He takes that which is ordinary and makes it extraordinary. The last miracle, the other bookend, is in this text that we've read. It's a failed fishing trip where empty nets at his command are filled. The point is simply this. Life without Jesus is rather sparse, but life with Christ is full. This is the theme of John's gospel. You see it in John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. I love that word abundance. In the Greek, it means exceeding expectation. It means God is able to do infinitely more than you can imagine. It means there is no limit to God's goodness and grace. 
And one of the intriguing things about this text is that John remembers the exact number of the fish that were caught. Well, fishermen always do, don't they? I remember when I would come home as a boy from a fishing trip and my mother would say, did you catch any? And I said, yeah. She'd say, how many did you catch? And I said, oh, I don't know, about 33. Fishermen always know the exact count, don't they? 153. Well, why not just say they caught a mess of fish? What does it matter? Every detail in John matters. St. Jerome, the fourth century father of the church, said that people in that day believed that there were 153 different species of fish in the sea. And so what John is saying here is that there is room in the net for all shapes and all sizes. All manner of fish are welcome in the net. And get this, and yet in spite of the number and the diversity, the net remains untorn. You see that? Kindred hearts. The bond holds tight. The the bond cannot be broken when the net is the mission of the church. And then Jesus, I love this, did you know that Jesus can cook? Jesus serves breakfast. Bread and fish, what is it? It's communion. This is, this is sacramental. This is the Eucharist. He takes the fish that have been caught. He puts it on the grate, and then he breaks the bread and the fish and blesses it and gives, gives it to the disciples, and they know that this is no stranger. In the breaking of the bread, it's the Lord, says John. After the meal, there's one of the most intimate and meaningful moments in any gospel. There is this personal encounter with Simon Peter and Jesus, and I suggest it's a recall story. Now, you can see where it's going by the mention that Jesus cooked breakfast over a charcoal fire. Again, what difference does it make? Why don't you just say, you know, it's a bonfire on the beach? Because the mention of charcoal is actually a reference to another scene where Peter had been present at a trial on Monday, Thursday, where he was asked if he had associated with Jesus, and he denied it three times while warming himself at a charcoal fire. Isn't it interesting how the sense of smell evokes memory? Scientists tell us more than any other of the senses, more than hearing, more than seeing, it is the sense of smell. Still today, when I smell fresh biscuits, I can see her in my mind. My grandmother in the hills of southwest Virginia, no one could make biscuits like her, and whenever I smelled them, I knew she was near. The sense of charcoal reminds Peter of his botched discipleship. But Jesus is not going to leave him in that memory. He's going to restore him. He's going to reinstate him. He's going to reconcile him. He's going to recall him. And watch how he does it. I love this. He begins by addressing Peter by his full name. 
Just like the first time he met Peter, John chapter 1, verse 42, Simon, son of John, from now on I'll call you Rocky or Peter. And now again, Jesus is calling him by his full name. When a parent or teacher calls you by your full name, it means business. When I was a boy, my mother would say, Wallace Davis Chapel, Jr. I usually went the other way. It was serious. We're going to have confirmation in a couple of weeks, and we're going to call each student, each sixth grader, by their full name. Why? Because something big is happening in confirmation. Their identity is being confirmed. Their sonship is being settled. Their daughtership is being determined, and a mission is being confirmed on them. Simon, son of John, Jesus says. And then comes the question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? I'm intrigued that Jesus never asks, do you love religion? He never asks that. Do you love the Torah? Do you love the law? Do you love Judaism? Do you love the synagogue? Do you love being a disciple? None of that. Do you love me? That's where discipleship begins, and that's where it ends. Do you love me? That's the question. And then notice that tagline, do you love me more than these? What's he talking about? More than the other disciples? Do you love me more than they do? And at first, that question sounds like Jesus is kind of setting up a a competition, kind of a comparison, and that's never a healthy thing in the church where someone claims, well, I'm more like Jesus than you. That's never a good thing, but that's not really what Jesus is doing. By asking that question, what Jesus is doing is it's a subtle reminder of an earlier promise that Peter had made. In chapter 14 on Monday, Thursday, after Jesus predicted that all 12 would forsake him, it was Peter who said, not me, Lord. Though all the others will fail you, will desert you, not me. I'll die with you. I'll give my life for you. But he didn't keep his promise. He caved. Do you really love me? But what, what is, what's Jesus doing? He's giving Peter a second chance to make good on a promise. Do you love me more than these? Three times, he asks. Why three times? Because Peter denied him three times, and Jesus is giving him a do-over. Have you ever given anybody a do-over? Jesus is giving him a mulligan. Everybody needs a mulligan now and then. Did you do what I did last Sunday after worship, go home and watch the Masters the final day? Anybody who spent 31 years in Georgia has to watch Augusta, Georgia, the Masters, that pro championship, one of the major golf tournaments, and it was Hideki Matsuyami who made history last week, won by one stroke, the first Asian professional male to ever win the Masters. 
If you didn't see it, here's what happened. He had a big lead, four, five-stroke lead going into the back nine on the final day of the Masters. He was doing pretty well. He bogeyed and bogeyed, and the one he was paired with, whose name was Xander Shoffley, was birdieing all the while. And when they got to hole 16, Shoffley was two strokes behind Matsuyama. At 16, with Xander charging ahead, he teed off on that par three right into the water. That's a picture of him after he hit the water. That's what I look like on almost every hole playing golf. Now, if I'd have been Xander, I would have gone to the rules keeper and said, may I have a mulligan? But it turns out the masters don't give mulligans. But the master does. After each affirmation, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Notice Peter is no longer claiming his own confidence and bravado. He's claiming the omniscience of Jesus. You know, you know. And after each affirmation, Jesus gives a mulligan and a mission. Feed my sheep. Tend my flock. Take care of my lambs. The way to love Jesus is to care for the flock. That's how you know a disciple. By this, others will know that you're mine by the way that you preach. No, by the way that you love the flock. Now, as fishers of men and women, and that's all of us, our mission is not to catch and release. It's to gather and keep. Sheep are never to be herded and driven. They're to be drawn and nurtured. And by the way, this is not just the task of the clergy. This is your task. This is the task of a disciple, and I said last week you don't have to wear a stole to do it. The way we love Jesus is by tending sheep. You know, I've noticed that too many of our churches operate by the little Bo Peep style of ministry. You know what that is? Little Bo Peep has lost her sheep and doesn't know where to find them. So leave them alone, and they'll come home wagging their tails behind them. But that's not the way it works with shepherds. You can't leave sheep alone because we're prone to wander. Isaiah said it, all we like sheep have gone astray and turned to his own way. You have to seek sheep. You have to find sheep. You have to love sheep. And you have to tend sheep. One of our shepherds, and with this I close, one of our shepherds in the city of Nashville is a woman named Becca Stevens. Some of you know Becca. She went to my alma mater, Overton High School, and graduated three years after I did in the dark ages. She's an Episcopal priest, and she's the founder of the Magdalene House and Thistle Farms, which is an incredible ministry in the city of Nashville 
particularly for women who are either coming out of sex, sex trafficking, coming out of prison, or coming out of abusive situations. It's an incredible ministry. Becca was raised as one of five kids by a widowed mother. Her father also was a priest who died years before in a car accident on the way home from church. In one of Becca's memoirs, she tells what I think is her own empty net story, and I want to share it with you. She writes, and I quote, it was the hardest morning of the summer when we were working to open Magdalene House. I got a call out of the blue that my mother had woken up and couldn't walk and she couldn't speak. We were scrambling for answers, and we couldn't believe that this woman, who had raised a million dollars the year before to build a gym for her church, could now not remember where she lived. This was also the morning that I woke up and thought I was having a miscarriage. I was hurting, and I wondered, should I go to the doctor for myself, or should I go to the hospital with mom? I called my doctor, a close friend, who said I could come in for a quick checkup and then proceed to the hospital. The doctor examined me and told me that there was no heartbeat and confirmed the miscarriage. I immediately went to the hospital to be with my mother. A nurse who was reading my mom's chart while she was being wheeled into the room looked up at me and said, is this Ann Stevens who was married to a priest named Joe Stevens? To which Becca said yes, but my father died back in 1968, and Becca said the nurse's question comforted me in an odd way because not one person in my whole adult life had ever asked me that question. And then the nurse proceeded to say, it was my house where your father stopped before he died. My mother and father were having a hard time, and he spoke with them and prayed with them in our living room. I was just a child, but the story in our family is that your father saved my parents' marriage. After morning worship, he had to stop by a house, and on his way home from that house, he was killed by a drunk driver. Becca said, I don't know why it had never occurred to me or my siblings to ask about the house my father had visited, but the fact that 30 years later, this stranger, on one of the most difficult days of my life, was saying my father had saved her parents' marriage was healing to me. There she was, this nurse, looking after my mom, tending her, loving on her. I still had a miscarriage, and my mother eventually did die. But I felt healing in that moment because it didn't feel like that life was spinning out of control anymore. Mercy and grace were standing in front of me, shepherding me, comforting me, and helping me to be at peace. In Will Willimon's commentary on Psalm 23, which is the shepherd's psalm, he focuses on these words. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Bishop Willimon translates the word follow to mean pursue. 
Surely goodness and mercy shall pursue me all the days of my life. And that's what Jesus is doing in this story. And that's what Jesus is doing in our lives. Because that's what shepherds do. (laughs) Toy, you are right. In a world that is deeply divided, in a world that is on the brink of chaos and polarization that is full of people like me and you with faulty and defective parts, we're still being pursued by goodness and mercy. We're still being pursued by one who fills empty nets, who's still calling and recalling and still asking the same question, do you love me? And he gives us a mulligan and a mission. Then tend my sheep. That's our mission. That's our reason. That's our purpose. And that binds us together and makes kindred hearts that cannot be broken. May it be so in you, in me, in us, to the glory of God. Amen.